You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Hey, I'm Adam Rispin, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Recently, I had the pleasure of chatting with veteran product and UX designer Chris Messina. He joined Uber as developer experience lead in January 2016, but you probably know him best as the inventor of the hashtag. He published the original proposal on his old Factory Joe blog back in 2007. Chris has been writing about and tracking a new trend at the intersection of AI, apps, and brands where messaging is no longer just a communications tool, but a transactional one as well. He's labeled the idea conversational commerce, and you can check out his posts on the topic on Medium at Chris Messina. During our chat, Chris was able to shed some light on how conversational commerce will shift the patterns of consumers. What is an easier, simpler way to deliver services to people at a lower cost that meets them where they are? Then there's the question of how a branded presence will take shape within a messaging context. That's another thing from a service design perspective that I think people should be thinking about is what is the brand sort of resonance that they're creating and how does it come through in the bots and agents that they uh, deploy. And looming large, there's the privacy hurdles these conversational bots will face as the experience becomes the norm. And it's interesting too, the things that I haven't quite figured out yet is whether or not uh, the rules of, of privacy apply equally to bots as to humans. Of course, we also spoke about the whole hashtag thing too. The hashtag to me was kind of my moment of recognizing that mobile was going to be a really big, important thing. It's a fascinating conversation and one that's insightful for product companies, small and large. Let's get into it. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So for the sake of our listeners, could you quickly introduce yourself and just give us a feel for your career trajectory, where you've been and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so I'm one of those odd-shaped people um, that whenever I go to interview at a big company, they don't quite know where to put me. And this <laughs> has happened several times. Um, I studied uh, communication design, actually, and arrived in the Valley about 10 years ago, um, starting out with the Mozilla Project. Okay. So I helped sort of organize the original, um, or at least co-organize the original launch of Firefox, and then got involved with a bunch of community projects um, like Barcamp and starting co-working here in San Francisco. I had my own consulting agency, um, and then I've also worked at Google, um, both as a developer advocate and as a UX designer. and. Then I took some time off. I worked for some digital art startups, and now I'm at Uber. Okay, cool, cool. I mean, at Google, you were doing a lot with developer tools, right? Yeah, I, so I, I created Google Developers, um, which kind of gave Google uh, a mouthpiece, I think, to speak to developers in a more uniform kind of way. Awesome. And for the past year or so, you've been tracking a really interesting trend that involves the convergence of messaging, bots, AI, a slew of other interesting technologies, and you branded conversational commerce, right? Yeah, so in January of 2015, um, just over a year ago, I just sort of started to notice this, this shift. And I think you know, Path Talk was actually one of the biggest ones that really gave me uh, an insight into where this was going. This just sort of feeling that you could talk to brands the way that you can talk to people. Um, wrote about it then, and then wrote about it again this January. And so why, why do you see that this is finally going to be the year that this, this comes of age after you put those feelers out there a little over a year ago? You know, part of it is, um, I think that there's this general fatigue that I sense. And, and so I, I, should, I should be clear, one of the things that's interesting about um, you know, being in Silicon Valley, being in San Francisco, is that we kind of live in the future you know, here. We're two to three years easily in the future. Um, and, and there's two things that are happening now. First, there's this app fatigue. Um, you know, there's constantly new stuff coming out. I've become a lot more involved in Product Hunt um, in the last year, mm -hmm. and I've just seen the challenge that new apps have of actually getting discovered and getting found. You know, people install apps, they never go back to them. Um, most people who have smartphones don't even install apps as it is. They just use the stuff that sort of comes stock. And that creates a real problem, I think, uh, in terms of growth and opportunities for companies and services that want to meet people where they are 
um, with the devices that they have. And so if you look at that sort of problem with that fatigue, that's one issue. And then on, on the other hand, you're like, well, what is an easier, simpler way to deliver services to people at a lower cost that meets them where they are? And most people, I think, on smartphones now are comfortable with the idea of messaging their friends. Mm -hmm. And so given that there's this huge amount of um, activity there, you know, you're not going to call an app per se, but you might interact with it through a messaging context um, that's more familiar to you, more comfortable. That creates, or at least has the, the preconditions to become a really interesting um, market for um, offering, you know, services and experiences and stuff like that. And I think the other thing is to look at how we're actually starting to fall back and behind in some respects because the Asian markets and the Indian markets are much ahead of us in terms of developing these conversational operating systems. And so, you know, we like to think of ourselves as sort of creating the future and being the place where all innovation is happening, but that's actually not necessarily and no longer true if it ever was true. And that, I think, has given me pause to start to think, well, what, if, what, what, what does that mean and what does it do to us in the way that we think about what we can build if we're no longer sort of like the front runners? Um, and it changes the whole sort of like perspective and paradigm. So it seems like a very important lens, particularly for developers to begin looking through if they're not already. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on a number of fronts, you know, on the one hand, again, distribution and getting your app discovered is like a big part of the puzzle today. Going through the app store is a big piece of the, the launch process and like, you know, waiting for uh, it to be approved and things like that. And there's, you know, reasons for that. There's sort of uh, a quality that, especially in the case of the um, Apple App Store, that Apple wants to keep. But in the case of moving quickly, iterating fast, um, and again, being more adaptive and responsive and personalized to your customer, I think the messaging paradigm really frees developers um, to be able to deliver their services to people wherever they happen to be, as opposed to having to first install, download, and learn a new app paradigm every time you know they want to try something out. Yeah, I think that idea of service discovery is really important here. And so the App Store, which in a lot of ways was an accident to begin with, if that current model is not going to be around much longer, where are people going to find these bots to interact with? What's what's that new marketplace like? You know, it's funny. Um, I wrote a post, I think in 2007, because the iPhone came out in 2007, um, about how Steve Jobs hated um, the App Store. And <clears throat> I think it was fairly controversial at the time. And of course, now the App Store makes a huge amount of money for Apple. So um, that might have been a little premature to state. But the idea was that the extension model for Apple was really around the web and, and WebKit. Um, frankly, you know, finally you had like a really performant browser um, on, a, on a mobile phone that, that didn't just sort of slim everything down to raw text. Um, and so it's interesting because we have this, this period of time where we brought the concept of a store into the computing context, which previously didn't exist. I mean, there was a time when there was no Mac App Store and there was no App Store, and you just found apps, uh, you know, through shareware and other sorts of weird distribution things. Now we're in an era of, of a glut of apps in this app store um, that are really hard to be differentiated. And there's no natural virality per se um, in terms of discovery except what happens through social networks. So when you sort of remove or maybe sort of put aside the app store and you sort of focus more on virality and social channels to spread apps, then it's the conversations themselves that lead people to discover things. And I think you, you're starting to see this um, in a number of contexts, whether it's Slack or whether it's Intercom or other places where people are doing messaging or, again, WhatsApp and Messenger, mm -hmm. Facebook Messenger itself, is that people will say or mention or talk about um, a bot or a service or something like that, and you can immediately go and interact with it. You know, let's say you're, you're on Slack. 
Um, you can just sort of connect the bot to your Slack instance, start av- uh, you know, having conversations with a bot, see if you like it, and then go from there. Um, and it's a very sort of fluid interaction, just like you know, if you were to add a new contact um, in iMessages, for example, you should be able to add and interact with bots in a very similar way. So it's almost self-serve meets word of mouth. Is that seem um, accurate in some ways? Or? I think word of mouth is certainly a big part of it. And also this idea that you don't have to like really... The, 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 the nature of installing software, of downloading this big binary um, that can take minutes, right? The, the, the problem is, is the time to satisfy an intent. So if a user is interested either in playing a game or in trying out you know, the new food delivery service or whatever, there's a question as to how long it's going to take from the moment that the user sort of conceives of having this desire to having that desire satisfied. And in the case of a game, it could take you know, tens of minutes. And maybe I have enough motivation to go back and actually play the game. But in the case of like a food delivery service, I may have forgotten that I even downloaded the, the, the app by the time um, you know, it's finished and installed. Whereas in the case of a messaging bot or app, it's just like, you know, you add the contact, you start talking to it, and you can have your needs met or not met um, in a very short amount of time with um, very minimal attention. And I think that economic shift will drive a lot more um, of this kind of both discovery and experimentation and sort of social sharing. Okay, okay. So, I mean, does this shift that you're describing then mean that the distinction between web and mobile is going to blur and ultimately disappear? I mean, will people just want access to a service or functionality at that point in time, regardless of what uh, service they're on. I mean, it's more, to me, it seems like more large screen versus small screen rather than mobile or desktop or what have you. Well, you know, you guys talk about um, the job to be done framework. And I think that that's incredibly valuable and insightful. Um, because when you think about what it is that you're actually trying to do, you have a set of tools or a suite of tools that may you know, manifest in different screen sizes that are actually more productive in those different contexts. You know, just because we're, we're sort of leaving in some respects the mouse and keyboard era of computing, it's not gone forever. It's just sort of now there are other modes that enter into our sort of non-computing moments. And we kind of expect or want to be able to have those capabilities or, or parts of those capabilities throughout our lives. And so, you know, we used to have like, you know, desktop machines that were kind of like stationary and, you know, you leave work and then you leave your computer there. Then we had laptops. You sort of like have your work on the go. You can have it on an airplane, you know, things like that. Then we sort of put it into the smaller form factor and it fits in your pocket. And now you're walking down the street and you can be distracted and walking to people and, you know, also yeah. getting your things done. So it's more like, I guess to your point, the idea of, of trying to split the difference between web and desktop or mobile um, is becoming less relevant and it's more just a bunch of services. It's sort of like a cloud of services or a cloud of brands. Like I was thinking about this the other day and um, our relationships to brands I think are going to change because the way that brands enter into our lives are going to be very different. Um, And so if brands become essentially kind of like superpowers that you can like turn on and turn off in your life at different moments um, based on the life state that you're in or whatever, um, that changes the dynamic. So for example, um, if I want to be able to, God, I don't even, these are going to be terrible examples because they're off the top of my head, but um, if there's an Amazon bot, for example, and I'm having a conversation with a friend and we're planning a birthday party, if I want to bring in the Amazon bot to be suggesting gift ideas, for example, um, you know, we're trying to come up with like what our friend, you know, would want, um, that bot is very relevant for that moment in time, and then I want to like turn off that superpower, you know? So... I think that's interesting. Um, going back to this question also about discovery, it occurred to me that um, the way in which you can share contact information, at least 
I'm, 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 I'm an iPhone user, so um, I don't Same. know. Same. <laughs> I, I can't speak for, for Android, but the fact that you can send a contact from one person to another um, is the act of installing a bot, essentially, if it runs over SMS. Right? So if I send you, like Drink Easy, for example, is uh, an SMS-based service to order booze. And I'm like, hey, you should check out Drink Easy. You're like, how do I, how do I get the app? Beautiful, how do I do it? Right? I'm like, there is no app. Here, let me send you the contact, uh, which you know, has the name Drink Easy and some short code. Just text it, and you'll be up and running. You're like, oh my god, that's it? You're like, yes, exactly, that's Seamless. it. Seamless. Seamless. You just add it to your address book, and you're done. Yeah. So that, that changes the whole dynamic. And so again, like, um, if you're trying to think about whether it should be web or mobile or desktop or you know, bot or chat or whatever, I think you know, go back to that framework of like, what's the job to be done, and then what are the ways or the moments or the context in which people want to interact with like the brand or the service? When is it most relevant? And really, you know, nail those, and then maybe extend from there because you don't want to like overpromise and say, well, we're on all platforms at all you know, at all time. If you're really not. This is fascinating as a consumer, but it must be equally, if not more, exciting on the developer side. It sounds like there is this fresh, new, clean palette to work with. What do you find most interesting in this space from a build perspective? Um, I'm sort of at a moment, like, you know, my job at Uber is to be the developer experience lead. And um, that's sort of a developer advocate evangelism role. But there's also product and, you know, marketing. And, you know, I wrote about sort of like this full stack employee concept a little while ago, which kind of was sort of a self-description, I guess. <laughs> Just like all this stuff that I you know, don't do super well but have to know about. Um, and this idea of, of what a developer is, I think, has actually morphed and changed significantly. And we haven't quite you know, rethought or reinvented the, the, the notion of what a developer is. And so one of the things that I'm hoping to do at Uber is to actually question you know, that. I don't know if there's a new term that needs to be used or whatever, but I'm really interested in appealing to the developer-designer hybrid, the one that integrates sort of the left and right brain, you know, the, the, the logical and the artistic, um, with ideally a kind of high EQ, in other words, sort of a high social intelligence that has a lot of empathy for people and wants to create you know, great services, great experiences um, that fit into people's lives and that meet people where they are, as opposed to what we've done for the last you know, 15 to 20 years, which is really asking people to become more like computers, to make their expressions more uh, or easier for computers to understand. You know, like, I mean, I think the Amazon Echo is a great example of this, where you can just sort of speak to it. And you know, granted, it's you know, sort of version 1.0 in a lot of ways. You can just have a natural kind of interaction with it. You can have a conversational interaction with it. Um, and you know, to, to come back and try to answer your question um, in terms of this sort of greenfield canvas, there's probably two things that I think are super interesting. One is, yes, this question of what, what are, or how do you design services that fit into a, a conversational paradigm, right? And I know you guys, you know, at Intercom think a lot about this, um, given the way that, of course, you're sort of setting up, whether it's like autoresponders or the ability to, um, you know, talk to talk to your customers. It's like, how does that scale? Right. Well, you know, that's, how does it scale and how does it stay personal and conversational? Exactly, right. Like, as opposed to the really crappy sort of like bots, you know, that used to exist. I mean, they're not even really bots 
from an AI perspective. It's like you show up on a web page, this little like pop-up shows up with this, you know, attractive person usually, and they're like, how hey, can I help you? And you're like, this is not really, I, I'm going to turn around and walk out the door. Um, but what Intercom does is it opens up this two-way channel, which is super interesting, and it, again, preconditions people to be able to just express what they want, to not think too hard about it. Um, and then, in this case, at least today, to have humans kind of interpret that request and then figure out how to solve the problem. So I think what I'm interested in, um, you know, from Uber's perspective, is those two things, are those two things. One is, what are these developer designer, you know, where are those folks? How do we talk to them? What is the nature of the conversation around those skills um, so people are thinking differently about what they're building? And then secondly, from the conversational perspective, how do we design services that fit into that? How do we design APIs um, and platforms that can be really broken into microservices um, so that every part of a conversation can be broken up and then you know, fed into these sort of microservices, having answers or responses sort of generated, and then some aggregate come back together. That's that's the response to the the user. Like if I'm trying to you know book an Uber like through Amazon Echo, which we just announced and launched, um, you want to be able to do a bunch of other things that it can't do yet. You know, you want to be able to say you know Alexa, book me an Uber, and also get me uh, you know restaurant um, reservations. You know, sort of all in one sentence. These things right now have to be done sequentially in an order because each of those is a different API call to a different service. Mm -hmm. But people don't need to think about those things. You know, they shouldn't have to think about those things. They have to they shouldn't think like, oh, it's open table for reservations or it's, um, you know, I don't know if it's caviar or um, reserve, reserve. Anyways, there's a you know what I mean. Like, you have to like think about the brand first and then think about you know what you want to say to it as opposed to I have this desire or intention. You know, help facilitate me getting the things that I'm looking for. Right. It's it, right now. It's not. I need a Mission Chinese reservation at eight thirty, and I need a car to pick me up at seven forty-five in order to get there on time. Right. It's very disjointed. Yeah, absolutely. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So as um, people begin getting more comfortable talking to, to bots and things of that nature, um, is it 
is it going to be very important that they know when they're talking to a bot as opposed to a human, or will people become more comfortable with those lines being blurred? I'm just very curious from a transparency perspective. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> um, and I, I, I don't know that I have um, the right answer yet. What I will say is, is I guess what I've observed is that um, the American marketplace, I think, tends to prefer to have more um, human-to-human you know, interactions. Um, or, or interactions that feel more human. Whereas in other cultures, um, there may be a, a preference for dealing with you know, a robotic or bot-like sort of system that's very sort of procedural. And it's interesting too, the things that I haven't quite figured out yet is whether or not uh, the rules of, of privacy um, apply equally to bots as to humans. So for example, if I'm talking to like uh, a robobot uh, that's like in healthcare, for example, and I'm asking it questions about some, I don't know, lesion that I've discovered on my body or something, <laughs> I may feel less embarrassed um, than if I'm talking to sort of some you know, nurse practitioner, right? Who's like, oh, you know, like basically there's this weird sort of thing that I haven't quite figured out yet, which is this anticipation of judgment um, that we presume in humans, but we don't presume in bots. You know, there's kind of like this willingness to engage with Google, like search, for example, and to say all the sort of things that you would never say to like a person, um, you know, to just sort of like see what comes up or whatever. But if you are actually kind of like talking to people, you'd completely like self-censor and like say different things. So that's one question that, that I think is interesting. Um, like, what if it was actually a human sort of pretending to be a bot? Would they, you know, feel more at liberty to share more Would things? Would there be less of an emotional attachment? Would you even consider right. that kind of thing? Exactly. So, so I don't know. I think that there's going to be this um, uncanny valley that um, I think starts to shrink, you know, in, in, in a sense, where you won't necessarily be able to tell all the time. And depending on your context and your mental state and the attention that you have available, you may not even care. So, for example, when I call Apple... You know, it's like talking to Siri, and I don't really care. You know, eventually I may end up talking to a human, but like for the most part, this Siri agent that I'm talking to does fine, right? So it's kind of more about how well these systems respond to me and understand what I'm asking for or can interpret what I'm asking. Um, and, and, and if a bot or an AI system, you know, is, is, is beyond adequate um, to do that, you know, perform sufficiently well, I don't know that people are going to care that much. There may be very specific instances, and I think this is where the brand question comes up, about the character, the quality, um, the, the personality um, of, of the agent or system or person that you're talking to that makes a big difference. So you, know, you may want to or, or prefer certain brands because of the nature of the way that they talk to you. Um, and that may actually be a really interesting kind of like oral in the A-U-R-A-L sense, um, of, of a new type of branding that emerges. You know, and I think Pixar is kind of like well-positioned to this because of all the characters that they've created. You know, you want to like, or Disney as well. That's another thing from a service design perspective that I think people should be thinking about is what is the brand sort of resonance that they're creating and how does it come through in the bots and agents that they uh, deploy? Yeah, it's, I mean, a brand, brands have always had voice and tone, right? But now there's, there's a character yeah, involved. That's right. And, and there's consistency too, right? Like, it's one thing to, you know, call it Virgin America and for them to play, you know, house music and um, for them to sound somewhat British, right? Sort of like the embodiment of like Richard Branson. Right. Um, the thing that's going to be new, though, and the thing that's going to be really interesting to think about is personalization, right? So um, with the move to the conversational 
um, paradigm for inter interfaces, um, we, we, we sort of start to live in threads. In other words, where there's persistence. So I may call Virgin America, you know, today, have a conversation with them, tell them that I'm vegetarian um, and that I like, you know, window seats. I mean, which are just terrible sort of examples, but you know, those are the types of things that you can imagine are preferences that you might actually have. And then two weeks from now I call back and I'm like, I'd like to, you know, book a flight to wherever because I'm having a conversational, you know, exchange. Or I'm messaging them on Facebook Messenger. I'm like, hey, can you book a flight for me? They're like, great, you know, we booked, you know, the flight, it's vegetarian, it's you know, an aisle seat or whatever my preference was, and it's done. So being able to move between channels and persist my preferences is going to become incredibly important in differentiating. Again, the privacy questions about that are super interesting um, and completely unanswered yet, but um, I think that people are going incre to like increasingly desire that because that's what we desire of our friends. You know, every time that I talk to a friend of mine, I'm not telling them my life story over and over again. They actually have persistence of memory. So why don't brands sort of have the same kind of persistence of memory so they can serve me better when I'm interacting with them? That point of consistency, to me at least, seems like one of the biggest hurdles right now because ultimately if the idea is a seamless transition from thing to thing and then you hit a wall, you're going back to square one. Yeah, and it's also how do how do organizations organize themselves around that? You know, I mean, even as it is today, you know, you call a bank and like you've talked to four or five people, you've had to verify your last name and like your social security number and like, you know, your dog's name, you know, and you're like, seriously, this is like one organization or you have a perception that it's one organization. Of course, maybe they're funneling you to like different companies and like, you know, in the Barbados. Who knows how many bureaucratic levels totally. are within a bank and, system. And, and, and how many, you know, onion layers of control of sharing information are in place to prevent certain types of abuses. But that's really, you know, user hostile in a way, even though of course the pre the, the sort of the premise is to protect people's data and information. Um, the quality of the experience is sufficiently eroded. And so there's gonna be a real interesting opportunity for companies and brands to think about how they address um, the sort of sharing and spread of information internally in a way that also respects people's wishes and desires from a privacy perspective. Right, because as a, as a consumer, just because of all those levels and firewalls, that doesn't change my expectations. Right, right. And at the same time, a bank or a doctor's office is a great example of something that when you're in there, it's very serious. It's not conversational. So how does that tone adjust to this, this new trend in medium? Sure, and, but on the other hand, it could, right? And part of the, the challenge... You know, and I, I don't want to speak authoritatively about the healthcare business because I don't know anything about it. Um, except to say that there is a lot of like seriousness about it. And if we become more willing to engage in an ongoing, you know, continuous partial attention way to all of these services that are out there, um, that that may make those moments a little less scary because you actually have an ongoing again, you have a thread that you've established. Like the conversations that I've had with One Medical, for example, which is a fairly progressive um, healthcare provider here in the Bay Area, have actually been very positive and very like warm and friendly. Um, and it feels like it would be amazing to be able to scale that to all types of services. Um, just because healthcare happens to be, or is conventionally thought of as serious, it doesn't need to be. Like the government could actually be extremely friendly and like cordial, but it's not for all sorts of reasons. But uh, why does it have to be that way? You know, if I don't know, I just. I've been thinking a lot about like the time that we spend and the time that we have and like the, the way that we fill our time. Um, and when there are those moments that are just kind of like grating or ugly, why can't we kind of like help to make the quality of those experiences, you know, somewhat better? And I think this conversational thing um, might force that to happen in some ways because you're gonna again choose and select for 
those experiences, which are you know better, nicer, easier, more familiar, more caring, more comfortable, more human. Yeah, it'll be. It's it's certainly an interesting shift. And I was actually you know as as these bots become more conversational and things of that nature, I was joking with a, a colleague of mine the other day about you know what would the new Turing test look like? Maybe it's it's emoji. I mean, maybe that's the way that in a, something that is stereotypically serious just lightens the mood, no, those small touches. It's funny that you say that, because that was literally what happened with Drink Easy. Um, it, you know, it's a service that you interact with over SMS, and I'm like, you know, a lot of these services have been sent to me recently, and so I'm, I'm try- trying them out. And in this case, um, you know, recommended this, like, you know, $150 bottle of scotch or something, and I was like, okay, you know, is this really a human on the other side, or is this just like a bot? And then, like, uh, the response was something along the lines of, if I was a bot, would I make like an emoji fart joke? And of course, had like a horse farting or something with the emojis. And I was like, okay, touche. You know, you got Well me. done. <laughs> yeah, well done. But, you know, who knows, right? It could have been a bot just like, you know, punking me. I have no idea. Switching gears slightly from sort of everything that you're looking forward to in 2016 to something a little bit earlier in your career, um, I think many of our listeners who haven't been tracking conversational commerce as closely as maybe they should be, um, know you for creating the original proposal for the hashtag on your old factory Joe blog. That's right. Uh, did you ever worry that quote unquote inventor of the hashtag was just going to follow you indefinitely and swallow your other accomplishments whole or how's that been? Um, it's so funny, you know, uh, for a long time I actually resisted like taking ownership of, of the hashtag and kind of like, um, calling it my own. I think it was probably 2011, like when I went to Google and I finally did like an interview with the New York Times about the hashtag. And I was like, okay, like I have to, I have to sort of be part of this story or else the narrative in the story is gonna go sort of sideways. And, um, and also furthermore, like there were companies, Twitter among them, that wanted to own the hashtag and prevent other companies from using it um, through trademarks and things like that. And, you know, it's important to, to, to think back. I mean, e- even the stuff that I'm talking about with conversational commerce comes from an era where, where there was a shift happening, right? Like the, the, the hash, my hashtag proposal was in 2007. It was the same year that the iPhone came out. Like, think about that. That was nine years ago. It took nine years to get the hashtag kind of like into mainstream adoption and usage. Um, and it was free. And like, you know, there were no permissions around it. Like, it was literally kind of a, a, a public domain idea, you know? And... So anyways, at a certain point, it just seemed to me that, that there was this dawning awareness that there was going to be money to be made um, from this behavior that had been kind of, you know, taken from the land of IRC, you know, and I'm very clear that, like, this was sort of inspired by things that were already happening and we uh, reappropriated it into the Twitter verse, um, but that it needed to sort of have someone there to kind of explain where it came from and explain that part of internet culture and that part of um, the ideology that led to the growth, adoption, and spread of this idea and this practice. You know, and it's so interesting now to see the rise of Slack, which is basically IRC culture built into like a web and mobile product um, that it just sort of reminds me that a lot of the things that, you know, us original geeks have been doing and have done for a long time will eventually become popular behaviors once the product or, or you know, the product market fit happens or once um, the need and culture becomes so great that, like, there's no other alternative, you know? Like, the hashtag to me was kind of my moment of recognizing that mobile was going to be a really big, important thing. You know, there was a time, just like, you know, you go back to, like, the original Slashdot thread about the iPod, and you're like, oh, I'm never going to need the iPod. It's a stupid thing. What is this click wheel nonsense or whatever? And there was similar, you know, you go back and you see... um, 
Steve Ballmer talk about the iPhone, you know, how it's a toy. It's like a soft software-based keyboard. Like, you know, no one's ever going to want that. They're going to spend $600 for a phone. Like, wow. Nine years later, we're still talking about that. That's, that's right? living in infamy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? So, but, but that's the thing where, I don't know, for me, I have to sort of maintain a very plastic idea about what reality is and how reality is going to reshape itself. And so the hashtag was, you know, my, my sort of gradual acceptance of, okay, yes, I brought this thing into being. There was a collective sort of moment where there were a lot of people thinking about this. Um, but I wrote it down and I started popularizing and I helped to promote it. Um, it was really important. And then I think it also kind of helps to maybe put, you know, my life and other people's lives who have been on the internet and have contributed to internet culture in perspective. It's a choice. It's something you can do. If you want to give away your work, you can, and it may end up actually having a material impact on the world. Um, and so for me, that was part of the story that I wanted to like be able to promote uh, as the hashtag kind of like rose. Nine years. That's that's crazy. Um, <laughs> I don't think it'll be nine years for the conversational thing to happen. Obviously, it's been happening and people are building on it. So there's a bit of like Moore's law happening with uh, these technological advances that they're just sort of like happening in a faster you know pace now. And here you are tracking conversational commerce with the hashtag. Which hashtag is that that you're following around? Yeah. So I've been using um, hashtag convcom, which is C-O-N-V-C-O-M-M, which is funny because it can either go for conversational commerce or conversational commands. But... It's, again, one of these terrible, like, I'm really bad at branding. Um, you know, Stowe Boyd was the guy that actually, like, called them hashtags. I called them tag channels. Um, he won on that regard. But, you know, the, the idea sort of stood. And I think in a similar way, it's probably the conversational word that's going to stick with the conversational commerce concept. When I was talking about conversational commerce, what I really was trying to emphasize was the shift from conversational messaging, which is for friends and for people that you know, to become one that's more about brands and businesses and transacting business in that context, um, which you know, in three to four years, or even by the end of this year, by the end of 2016, is not going to be weird. But prior to this year, prior to 2015, it was and had been weird to think about texting a brand and getting an actual reasonable response. And so that's that's sort of where this this term conversational commerce, um, you know, springs from. Well, it certainly seems like with your new venture at Uber that this is going to be a huge key component of, of your job. What do you hope to achieve at Uber, and where do you see as the biggest opportunities there? God, that's such a big question. Um, you know, I, I, I joined Uber uh, in January, so just over a month ago, um, because I feel like it's sort of at the beginning of this shift to bring the Internet into reality. And there's a lot of things that are happening to do this, whether it's Internet of Things or, um, you know, again, like the, the, the Echo is a good example of sort of hardware that's bringing the Internet into people's everyday lives. But I think the thing that's so interesting to me about, about Uber and about the platform specifically is that it's changing some fundamental assumptions about the shape and design of life and particular city, particularly cities. So, you know, we, we sort of have a conventional relationship to transportation, um, you know, as a, as a way of getting from point A to point B. And it's perfunctory and it's necessary and we don't necessarily look forward to it. I mean, maybe there are some people that look forward to their commute, you know, and sitting in traffic and maybe catching up on, you know, NPR or podcasts. And I think that, again, going back to that, that sort of question about all the moments that we have on a, on a day-to-day basis that are just not great, that could be optimized or made better, um, transportation is one of those things that sucks up an enormous amount of people's time and energy. You know, for example, I was thinking about um, the time that I spent 
commuting back and forth to Google for three and a half years. And you know, if you imagine that I commuted back and forth um, an hour and a half each way, um, you know, as traffic got worse and worse, and I did this, let's say, 300 days out of the year. Um, so let's make it easy and say um, over three years, 300 days, you know, 900 um, days, and um, now my math is an hour and a half. Yeah, yes. it's it's a lot. <laughs> and then if you you know imagine that I was paid roughly, let's say, hundred dollars an hour to make it easy. Anyways, I ended up doing the math, and it was something like um, I would have had another three hundred fifteen thousand dollars worth of value uh, over the course of three years. What could I do with three hundred fifteen thousand dollars? Well, that's an interesting question. Now, if you're Google and you multiply that by the number of people who ride on a single Google shuttle, let's say it's about forty people. Right. Well, 40, um, again, my math is going to be terrible. You know, that comes to, I don't know if it's like 1.2 or $12 million, something around those lines. Right. And see, this is why I'm not a developer. Um, I'm terrible at math. And then, right. So that's on the low end. That's 40 people per Google bus. Now imagine that you multiply that by the number of shuttles that Google operates. Let's say it's like 150 to 200. Now we're talking like, you know, a couple billion dollars over the course of like three years, right? Billions of dollars of valuable time spent in traffic, you know, and if each one of those people was a driver and they were in traffic, think about all that cognitive excess capacity that could have been spent, you know, enriching yourself or whatever. And of course, Google does that because of the shuttle system and so on. But like, why can't everyone have that? Why can't all the people who don't work at Google have access to the same, you know, time resource that's currently being, you know, utilized to focus on taillights? Taillights, that's the thing that we know the most about, is like sitting and looking at taillights. So if anything, what I think is interesting about Uber is sort of changing that paradigm and changing that relationship to transportation um, and, and finding more ways of enriching the moments that we have on a, on a global scale. And I think that it's gonna be you know, totally transformational. That's awesome. As someone who's had over an, over an hour commute before where I've become very intimately familiar with the uh, glare of taillights and the trance they can make you fall into, hopefully when you're not behind the wheel. Right. Um, that's, that's super exciting stuff. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a fun conversation. Hope you had a good time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.